Welcome to From the Valley Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Wilshire, Brisbane Business Life. We have a very special guest uh, with us today on this lovely midday, midweek uh, Wednesday, Kevin Ryan. Uh, so Kevin's got uh, lots of different a lot of different backgrounds in all different types of business coaching, consulting, uh, and also uh, he's very well known for being an, what I call an expert negotiator. Welcome along, Kevin. Thank you, Tim. Glad to be here. So I guess, Kevin, uh, I had a bit of a chat to you not that long ago. You said it would probably be a good idea to come on my podcast. Um, probably had about 11 or 12 episodes, different, varying lots of different people. So it's always good to get someone uh, who can who can tell us a bit of a story and tell us a bit about uh, their take on a few different things. So, Kevin, tell us a bit about your, um, I guess, your background, where you sort of grew up, uh, early life, what, what sort of motivated you as a kid, what, what was family life like for you? I had a pretty happy um, upbringing. Actually, Tim, uh, growing up not too far from here, I... Um I was born and raised in Brisbane, went, went to school here, um, and then I left to go to university up in, up in North Queensland. Came back here about uh, 15 years ago when I realised that Brisbane was the best place in the world to live. It certainly is the best place in the world to live, Brisbane. Uh, it's great. So you, out of all your years of living, and you sort of a bit of a, can be a bit of a, a traveller around the globe, you've, you've been to a few different areas around, around the world. Uh, how long in your life have you sort of lived in Brisbane? Um, well, probably about half of it now, um, increasing to more. We, um, we moved into a place where we're living now about, um, about 18, 19 years ago, and um, we can't see ourselves moving away from there. Beautiful. So um, I guess growing up, tell us about some of the, I guess, lessons that you may have learnt growing up and any stories that sort of resonate, come to mind that sort of may, that you may remember from time to time and you bring up when you're telling stories and that sort of thing. Um, well, probably most, the most interesting story that, um, that I use regularly in my speaking is the fact that I was not actually um, uh, the natural child of my, of my parents. Um, I was actually adopted. I was born at the Royal Brisbane Hospital uh, many, many years ago, and then at two weeks old, I was lucky enough to be adopted by, by my parents. And um, I'm uh, always reminded about the way that they explained that to me right from the very start, um, and I've always felt very lucky that whilst there are many people that see that as being maybe a negative in their past, um, I, even I'm aware of the fact that many years ago um, down in Canberra they actually did a special display which was the, the apology to those people who were adopted during that particular era because many times it was done inappropriately. Um, but I've always felt that it was one of the luckiest things that ever happened to my life. And it, I suppose the lesson that taught me is that uh, we can have um, different things happen to us um, and some people can see that as a negative and some people can see that as a positive, and it all depends on your perspective. Is that something you found out fairly young in your in your childhood that you were adopted, or is that something that... I, I was lucky that my parents explained it to me right from the very moment that I could actually understand it, and I, and I felt that was um, a great privilege. Uh, they were also astute enough to let me know that maybe it wasn't um, the first thing I should introduce myself with when I first meet strangers because yep. uh, some of them might have a different take on that um, but I always saw it as a, as a very positive thing. Yeah, no, it's certainly a, a good way to look at that. Certainly I've known my fair share of people that have been adopted uh, into, into you know f family friends and that sort of thing so I've seen a bit of that growing up as well. Um, I guess did you have sort of were you, did you live with any other brothers and sisters that were sort of in the same house? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 had, I had a sister um, who was adopted about... Um, uh, two years after after I was, so you might see oh, us okay. as the as as the perfect blended family. I mean, my parents 
uh, still um, right till, till the day they died. We're talking about um, uh, the gentleman that used to run the um, uh, the takeaway store, um, not too far from where we were, who actually happened to be a JP and was the man that actually signed their um, their references to be, to allow them uh, to adopt me in the first place. And um, I, I'm sometimes amused, and my wife and I joke about the fact that. Isn't it interesting that my parents actually had to have references to be able to adopt me in the first place, yep. and yet when we had our children, we had to depart, didn't have to pass any tests whatsoever. Mm. Um, and uh, it's it's taught me also about the fact that the way that you find that information can sometimes have a very strong impact on how you perceive that information. I yep. do a lot of work nowadays in interpersonal communication and business communication, mm. and what I've identified is that a lot of the times it's when people get bad news, it's not so much the news that they're so um, disturbed about, is that they're more upset about how they actually find out. Yeah, the news. definitely. Um, so I guess growing up at school, what, what did you enjoy doing? Were you into any particular sports, uh, recreations, activities? Oh yes, I was. Um, I, I went to a, a Catholic boys' school where the two sports were um, uh, were uh, rugby league or rugby union and, and and cricket, both of which I was absolutely appalling at. So um, I was uh, very lucky that the school was flexible enough to allow us to be the first team um, at the school to go out and play the round ball game, um, uh, uh, and um, they they allowed us to be able to be enrolled in the um, in the Queensland Soccer Federation uh, competition. And I can still remember our first game. And those of you who um, know about the scoring in, in football can understand that when you go out and have your first game and you lose that game 24-0, it is not entirely the most positive start to a, to a football career. So you're talking soccer there? with it? I'm talking soccer there, yes. yeah. We, our first game, we lost 24-0. And I'm, oh, I'm very pleased about the fact that when we met that team in the second round, um, we improved so much that we actually managed to... Um, uh, end up with a two-all uh, draw as, as a result, um, and I'm even more proud of the fact, or maybe it's a sign of our incompetence, that in that two-all draw, we actually mm. scored all four goals, our team. We scored two goals for ourselves two goals. and two goals against ourselves. That's a first, <laughs> so I've never heard that sort we, of story. We improved, we improved, but not necessarily in every area. Two own goals, though. that's interesting. And, yeah. No, I did play soccer growing up. I loved soccer uh, up until a sort of mid-teenage year. So, I mean, were you good at soccer? Did you get to a point where you felt you were doing well at it? Oh, I, um, when I went up to, to North Queensland, I was um, I was actually playing for um, Townsville Olympic, so which was the most highly regarded team up there. And I can remember some very interesting games, particularly when we used to go uh, further north up to areas like Ingham and, and Tully, where there was a very, very strong um, Italian um, okay. uh, contingent, um, and, and so um, I became very aware of the um, uh, uh, the passion of, um, of the Europeans for that particular game. Excellent. Um, yeah, so yeah, soccer, yeah, loved it. As well, do you still follow soccer to this day? I, I still do, um, and, and my son started out playing soccer, but then they managed to become um, uh, enticed by their friends to go off and and actually play um, Australian rules. Um, okay. So I've got uh, I've got two sons now, one who's uh, heavily involved in um, in the Colts um, grade, uh, and another one who's playing um, at a fairly high division in in under 15s, and so. Um, uh, it's taken me about two years to totally understand what's going on, mm. um, but um, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy it, and I and, I'm, and I admire um, the staged way in which that sport has has, mm. has been set up. So when young people become involved in it, mm. they can learn the positional play and they can mm. learn the skills without putting themselves in mm. 
in the face of too much danger. Yeah, so I guess you early sort of, when you became an adult, what did you first get into uh, as far as a career was? What? Oh, my, um, and I'm probably showing my age here, I went off to, um, uh, to study economics at university um, and, um, and, and uh, was actually being um, uh, sponsored by a large bank okay. at, at the time. Um, and, and I saw myself and my, my parents hoped the fact that I one day would become a, I'm a bank manager or maybe um, an accountant for, um, <laughs> for one, of, one of the big banks. Um, and it took me about two years to realise that probably wasn't the best, best fit for me. Um, but it, it, was a, it was a great grounding and, and it gave me a great understanding yes. of, um, of the uh, financial um, uh, twos and fro's of what's going on in the world at the moment. Yeah, definitely. A financial background is, is certainly it, it's it can be very powerful in whatever wherever your career leads to, uh, even if it isn't necessarily in finance. But uh, that's a good grounding. So, and then what, I guess from there, what 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 was next for you after that? Well, what I did was I actually moved into um, into areas becoming involved in sales, yep. um, and um, probably spend the next um, twenty years. Um, uh, being headhunted by by different companies, uh, companies who had um, become very successful in in their own market, but wanted to expand into into different markets. And so um, I um, I was pleased to be able to become involved in organisations which already had a good strong infrastructure, but um, also to be able to use my creativity to be able to find ways mm. in which we could take um, our skills and our services mm. and offer them into different markets. So where do you think your creativity comes from? Is that something that you think you were sort of born with or is creativity something that you can sort of work on and, and, and become good at? What do you um, think? Oh, I, I, um, there's, there's two kinds of creativity, Tim, from, from my research. Uh, one is what's known as um, um, uh, the, the truly innovative creativity where you'll come up with a totally new idea which no one has ever thought of before. And then there's what's known as synthetic uh, creativity where you're looking at what's existing at the moment and then you find ways of being able to adapt it or to, or to meld it. And I'll, I would put myself into the, into the second category. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, at the one company I was involved in, uh, we had a large um, business in servicing all of the uh, fast food companies uh, throughout Australia. So we provided all of the technology to your, to your major fast food chains. Um, and we were looking at ways in which we could expand. Um, and I was simply looking at the skills and the services that we offered that might be unique. And the one thing that I mm. became aware of is that we had technicians who were available on 24-hour call. Because yep. when your large fast food chains want to run a drive-through yep. and, and that drive-through breaks down, then they expect somebody to do it there very, very quickly. Yep. Um, and uh, we were able to actually move into, into health and, and, and aged care, which at the time was a, was a growing market, um, mm. because I also realised that it's an industry that requires technical support um, and also an industry that requires 24-hour technical support. And so I was very pleased to be able to take us into an entirely new market um, and be able to find ways in which the services that we offered were of um, perceivable value to them. Mm. Yeah, so, and change, I guess, is something that's it's always going to be big in the world. When you sort of grow up, you always think, well, you know, things are changing. What do you think, is there any sort of tips that you've got in relation to being able to adapt to change? Because you obviously see different organisations, some of them don't change as, as quickly as others or make those changes. What do you think uh, when you when you when you when someone talks about change and that sort of thing? 
Well, I mean, I'm reminded of um, a book that was written in 1970 by Alvin Toffler called Future Shock, where um, 40, 50 years ago he, he predicted the fact that we would reach such a rate of change that we would actually go into what's called analysis paralysis and it would become too difficult for us to be able to define the direction in which we should move forward because um, the options and the information available to us simply overwhelmed us. And I think we are certainly experiencing that at the moment. Um, and so what I found is it's very, very important to have a, a strong, broad network. So when I find areas where the information is actually overwhelming me, I can find someone I can go to who can help put it into in, into a form that I can actually understand. Mm. I think um, we are delusional if we expect ourselves mm. to be um, functional and, and, and competent in every area mm. nowadays. And so what I think is, is important is to be able to have a good network that mm. will help you to be able to understand that. So I guess as a young salesperson in, back in your 20s, were, were you sort of a good net networker back in those days? Um, I was... Um, uh, I believe I was, and um, and the main reason was I was always looking at being able to build relationships where I could continue on with them. A lot, a lot of salespeople um, come up with a sales model that once they've sold something to somebody, then the next time they see them, they try to cross the street so they won't meet them again. Whereas <laughs> my model has always been that if I'm going to sell something to somebody, I want that to improve our relationship and to strengthen. A relationship definitely um, and, and and it's an attitude I've been able to bring strongly into the networking training that I'm doing at the moment and how do you think networking has changed over the years uh, do you think I mean there's obviously the, there's the online aspects of of uh, you know the way people do business these days how's that sort of how do you sort of seeing things change in the networking space uh, uh, Tim I can remember back uh, doing a program at the Australian Institute of Management many many years ago um, and the trainer, I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to embarrass anyone, suggested to us that if we didn't already smoke cigarettes, then it would be an excellent idea to take up smoking cigarettes because when you go outside or maybe even when you're still sitting inside, which you could in those days, <laughs> and, you, and, and, you, and you pull out a lighter and the two of you use the same flame to be able to light your cigarette off it, then that's a point of connection um, that, can, <laughs> can, that can be used to be able to create an even stronger network. And... Um, uh, whilst it was it was very very good advice, it probably wasn't the healthiest advice to be able to give give anyone. Um, and the thing that I'm reminded of is that even though we have so many different ways in which we can connect nowadays, um, and we can believe that we have so many thousands of friends and so many thousands of connections, um, there is nothing that substitutes for simply getting face to face with someone now. Um, uh, it, you know, the opportunity of lighting a cigarette um, off the same flame with them is obviously not an opportunity uh, now and I feel sorry for those poor people particularly <laughs> when you go to uh, go to the southern states in the middle of winter and you see them huddling outside on a, on, yeah. on a freezing day but um, uh, it, it's just reminded me that even though we have so many other ways of uh, connecting with each other nowadays the face-to-face -face connection is still the most valuable. It certainly is the most valuable and it certainly is part of what networking still is in 2018 strongly with a lot of the networking that I do, um, whether it's a breakfast on a Friday with bots or the end of month breakfast with KBBG or you know the meet and mingles with, with the Valley Chamber. So it's certainly the you know the those connections that you get out and I guess they just turn into more than that you know friendships and stuff like that as well so it's it's certainly gonna always be there and it's hard to imagine a day where that's not going to be like that but you never know who knows um 
It's so, a constant challenge for me, Tim. I'm, I'm involved with uh, people doing very, very large um, negotiations quite often internationally, mm. um, and it appalls me when I find the fact that they'll be negotiating a multi-million dollar deal uh, when they still have never actually met face to face. Oh, yes. And, and, and I, will, I will get frustrated um, and um, I'll bang the table and I'll simply say to them, please get in the plane because yeah. uh, uh, the, the couple of thousand dollars you might save um, uh, by, by taking that particular route is going to be um, uh, a, a totally false economy mm. when you look at getting the, the most useful deal. Yeah, so listeners, uh, Kevin came to our uh, office here where we're doing the podcast in this in this very room, this uh, this boardroom here at uh, Confidential Tax and Business Services, and ran a negotiating session uh, for about fifteen people, I think, or a dozen to fifteen people at the time, and a lot of people that attended that workshop got so much out of it, Kevin. Uh, so uh, again, thank you for for um, you know, I guess giving us an insight into you know the negotiating skills but but I guess with the listeners who who weren't there uh, and negotiating wh- tell us a bit about when you felt that you you know wh- when was a time in your life where you felt this is what I'm all about I, c- I can negotiate a deal and I can sort of use use a particular approach it's gonna gonna become very successful uh, with this type of skill um, great question Tim um, because I have a, a background uh, obviously looking at the sales process and, um, and I've actually written books on, on, on how the sales process has changed uh, since, um, uh, since the internet has become people's primary source of, of information. I wanted to look at the part of the sales process that impacted most on, on success. And, um, and when I'm talking about sales, I'm, I'm talking about even when leaders have to speak to their staff. Um, and sell the, the product that leaders constantly have to sell, which is change, which you'd referred to earlier on. And, and what I found was um, there, there were two uh, parts to the process that most people failed at. At the early part of the process, their networking was lousy. And so they, they didn't have a full enough pipeline. They didn't have enough alternatives to them. And so when they were wedged in the... Um, as they eventually will be in, in today's world, in a, in a, in a, in a globalised, commoditised world, um, and, and somebody starts trying to push you down regarding, regarding price and, um, and what, your, what your options are, um, you need to be able to look at, at alternatives. And most salespeople don't have enough alternatives, and so I wanted to be able to help them to be able to network more effectively. But also what I found was their negotiation skills in the early part of the of the sales process to be able to truly identify what the where the overlap was and where where their value offering was and also obviously at the sharp end of the sales when it comes to what we call the close of the sale it's not the terminology i'm i'm uh, i'm in favor of because i don't think it's the close of the relationship at all. I think it's the beginning of the relationship. Very true. But, um, the, the negotiation part of the sale, and as sales become more complex now, I was finding that it was an area that a lot of people were failing at. Um, and everyone's in sales. If you're a business owner nowadays, um, you're in sales, even though it's not the it's not the title that most people put after their name willingly. In mm. my experience, most people fall into sales by accident. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> By accident for accountants, that's for sure. And we're not the greatest at selling things, that's for sure. But uh, uh, obviously, with, with with our type of industry, it's always been a, a word of mouth referral sort of system, as as well as getting the, getting the work in and and getting the new clients in the door. But um, negotiating 
it's certainly a very powerful skill to have and you know from what I've from what I've seen your you know your system you know it's it's pretty much uh, makes it very difficult to fail I think uh, you know when you in that whole process not not that I'm sure it happens but it just sort of lessens the odds you know big time yeah it, it amazes me how often and I've been involved as I mentioned before over many years in helping teams negotiate how many teams um, negotiate very poorly because they don't prepare um, mm. I, preparation I, I, yeah uh, and and it's the preparation that you, that you do before you go into the negotiation that will often have the most impact on that um, it's knowing your defined limits a lot of people go into negotiation with the attitude that, that we're just gonna hope for the best outcome we can get um, without any planning without any mm. assessment of how they might be able to offer value mm. to the other side and in my experience also um, there are different types of negotiation and I think the biggest problem is most people only have one negotiating hat and mm. uh, we need to have a number of negotiating hats because there are different types of negotiations we become involved in uh, and we need to be able to assess the negotiation so as we can determine the right approach rather than just using a one-size-fits-all attitude definitely and not only that um, you know you you become sort of experienced in negotiating with other different types of countries and cultures um, that must be must take a bit of uh, I guess a, a lot of work to be able to understand say you know how, how the Chinese sort of react to a deal compared to people in the United States and England and Australia and all, all other you know Europeans um, everyone every country is a bit different so your experiences in covering all those different types of grounds I mean uh, you obviously learnt quite a lot from that is there anything you can ex share I guess um, uh, cultural differences are probably one of the most obvious um, uh, clash points uh, with negotiation and I think you have to be aware of the way different cultures do negotiate uh, for example uh, different cultures have a totally different attitude to time and so what we might think as being very timely, um, another culture might see as being too pushy or, or, or um, us talking about business inappropriately when we still should be building the relationship. Um, there are in the world what are called negotiating and non-negotiating cultures. And so our culture tends to be what's known as a non-negotiating culture. Once we've done a deal, once we've signed the contract, then our professionalism is determined by our ability to be able to stick to that contract where there are some cultures which are called negotiating cultures where negotiating never stops their attitude is we did a deal yesterday but today is a different day today have different circumstances different opportunities um, maybe if I ask the same question today as I did yesterday I'll get a, I'll get a better answer and so sometimes they can be seem very annoying to those of us who come from a non-negotiating background because we think the deal is done and then every time we we meet them uh, they still want to try and negotiate they're still wanting to ask for, for something extra and it's very very easy to get um, upset, at, upset at that it's very easy to misjudge the other person as being unprofessional or maybe even worse unethical when really mm. it is just their culture and people have the ability to change their culture about as much as they have the ability to change their eye colour um, uh, and so they can't change it we just have to expect that accept that and um, and, and focus on it however um, as you said yes it's been 10 years now I've been working um, with many different cultures um, and um, it, it amazes me how we might see a culture as a broad group 
where they actually see themselves as many different groups. In within the yeah, um, I, I I did a lot in in, in Singapore. Um, in, in Singapore, we quite often talk about um, mainland Chinese, um, Singapore-born Chinese, and American-born Chinese, and they are all seen as three entirely different cultures. Of course, yeah, <laughs> uh, rather than just one broad broad set. But the other thing that um, our research has shown is that whilst it is very easy when we have a clash. In a, nego- in, in a negotiation, and when we have a clash with somebody from another culture, it is very easy to assume that a, a cultural difference is the problem. And yet, interestingly, the research has shown that most of the time when we assume it's a cultural clash, it's actually a personality clash. Yep. And so I think what we have to do is remember that we have problems with people from our own culture just as much as we do with people from other cultures and so if we're negotiating with somebody from another culture it's a mistake to assume that if we are having a problem it's it's the culture quite often it might just be a personality clash exactly the same as we have within our own culture yeah personality is always uh it's always a way people can often i guess be necessarily people like sometimes are there to judge i guess and your personality can judge where you're at Sometimes, maybe even in the negotiating, uh, does it? If people's personality can be off-putting uh, in a negotiation, obviously that has a fairly big effect. And how do you sort of come up? Come? How do you sort of get around personalities? Well, um, uh, sometimes you have to accept the fact that um, some personalities are just different when they're negotiating. I know some people who are the loveliest, fluffiest pussycats um, on a day-to-day basis and yet when you come into the room to negotiate with them suddenly they've turned into an attack dog because they believe that that's the way that they will get the best results from the negotiation. We are also um, massively influenced by our biases and some of, some of our biases um, we're aware of um, and some of our biases we're not aware of and so um, it's very easy for somebody um, to associate a bias. For example, if I've had a bad interaction with somebody from a particular profession, um, it is likely that the next time I'm dealing with somebody from that profession, even though they're a totally different personality and they have a totally different approach, that I will instantly be biased against them because my brain wants to go into into patent behaviour. Mm-hmm. And my brain sees them externally. Oh, they're an accountant. They're a, they're a real estate agent. They're a, um, they're a financial advisor. My last interaction with an accountant was not entirely positive. Uh, they tried to make a fool of me by using all this terminology that I, I didn't understand. And it's very, very easy for my brain to fall into the pattern behaviour of expecting you to be the same way. Uh, and I'll probably treat you negatively um, the first time. Uh, you are just really the victim of my last interaction with somebody from your profession. And so we use in negotiation a technique I call pattern interrupting. In other words, I have to do something in the early part of my interaction with you to be able to convince you that I'm different to the the last person from this profession that you dealt with because if your interaction was not entirely positive, um, then then you're going to have a negative attitude to me right from the very start. So you said you've written a few books. Tell us, tell the listeners some of the names of the books, uh, so we can, if you wanted to have a bit of a look and Google and get these books. Well, um, a lot of them go into, into academia, and so um, they, 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 uh, we put a lot of books into into the high schools and to the universities around the world. The most recent one that people might find of use is a, is a book called Tilt, which is a four-step sales process that I've um, I've identified. And Tilt is a 
uh, stands for the, the four steps, which is build trust, put yourself into a position of influence, uh, use that to be able to create leverage, and then use that to be able to trigger the buying decision. A lot of my um, work is now based around decision facilitation. If I'm going to be negotiating with you, I see my entire role as being able to build in you the confidence that will allow you to make the decision that I actually want you to make. Mm. And so I'm not trying to wedge you, I'm not trying to push you into a corner or make you feel that you have to give me that answer because there's no other alternative. I want to build your decision-making confidence mm. so you can feel that uh, giving me the answer that I want is also mm. the best answer for you. Mm. Now, you, you certainly, when did you first get into public speaking and stuff like that? You obviously, so you get internationally renowned and you've been, you've probably been a, a speaker at different conferences over the course of your career. Tell us a bit about how you got into that. <coughs> um, uh, well, I, um, I, I came in via the Toastmasters. Ruth, I, um, I, I yes. became involved in the Toastmasters course at my work many, many years ago when um, I realised that uh, my presentations when I was doing product presentations were, were fairly ordinary. And you, I became the talking... You saw a few flaws that you could fix and... Well, I, I'd become the talking brochure. Yeah. Um, and yeah. um, I'd I made the mistake of doing my first five presentations with my sales manager in the back of the room. Um, right. And if I, if I left something out, then he'd berate me at the end of it. And so it really became more a, a case of me covering a checklist that was in my mind mm. rather than engaging the audience. And so I found I, I needed to be able to find ways of being able to improve that. Luckily, I found it was something that I not only enjoyed, that I was able to be um, good enough at, uh, to be able to get to... To, to represent um, Australian Toastmasters in some in some contests, um, and then um, when I moved out uh, in business on my own, mm. um, uh, my speaking and as you said, I do um, like conference keynoting um, as well as running workshops uh, is one of the main ways in which I can um, let people know about the ideas that I have to share with them. Mm. So, and, you, and when did you start sort of doing that? Um, how long ago in your <gasps> Oh, I, I first moved into uh, into my own business, um, started my business on the, on the 1st of April 2001, which was a, uh, uh, April Fool's Day is a good day to start a business. And, Definitely. Um, uh, and uh, since then, um, it was about uh, eight years after that, I achieved the, the designation known as Certified Speaking Professional, which is a, an international um, level, level of accreditation yep. with speaking, which will mm. pretty well allow me to be able to... Um, Get registered by any of the speaking bureaus yeah. anywhere around the world. There's a there's a there's an old speaker that um, I used, used to know quite well before he passed on, um, Jeff Kirkwood. I'm not sure. Does he? If he, if he oh, I knew Jeff very well. Yeah, so yeah. Jeff. Uh, Jeff, Jeff was a was a great speaker, also a great networker. Yeah, um, very good at both. In, in, yeah. in setting up, I think BNI. Um, yes. In, in in many different areas. So um, yeah, I actually went to. Um, uh, uh, the memorial service. Um, yep. When 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 uh, when Jeff left us, so yeah. Yeah, I, I remember. I think I went to a wake along a racecourse road. That was. Um, mm. Yeah, and that was yeah. So that's only a few years ago. It was now. only a couple of years ago. Yeah. But uh, no, he was a good guy, and anyway, so he, he was an, he was an international um, uh, public speaker. You know, fairly well known. Wrote probably wrote books as well. Like uh, so, there's a fair, fair bit of crossover with you guys, even. So when you think about that, um, but yeah, so. I guess what what sort of what sort of motivates you in 2018, Kevin? What uh, is there is there anything in particular now in in these days that you 
you know, obviously you can help people with what you've learnt and all that sort of stuff, but is what sort of gets you out of bed every morning? Ah, um, well, maybe if I could describe about what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, I think um, might give might encapsulate uh, yes. some of the things. Uh, two weeks ago, I was over in um, in Asia running running a two day workshop over there, um, and that was an, um, a, a workshop run for a large company where they had staff from. Uh, uh, seven different countries and they spoke six different languages mm. um, and to be able to help them because what I'm finding with negotiation is a lot of the times in the early days when I became involved in negotiation it was all external negotiation person to person or maybe business to business negotiation um, at least half the time now uh, my negotiation skills are actually used internally and so it's how um, uh, you can negotiate with your peers, how you can negotiate with your superiors, um, and most importantly, how you can negotiate with other departments. And uh, when I'm involved with the large companies, they will have uh, people from different cultures, people from different backgrounds. Sometimes they're, they're agencies that used to be agencies for this large company, but have now been taken over, and they've been incorporated into the, into the one large organisation. And it's helping them when they have to work together um, to be able to find ways in which they can all have, have ownership of them. Mm. And then last week I was lucky enough to spend some time travelling through uh, central western New South Wales. So I did a series of, of workshops um, in Lithgow and Parks and Orange and Dubbo and, and, and Bathurst um, with a very innovative program run by the Charles Sturt University. Um, and it was about helping people to be able to negotiate, not only negotiate externally, but I was uh, trying to encourage them also to be able to use the brilliant communities they've got there, to be able to use the, the small agile businesses that they've got there, to be able to negotiate together so they can mm. network more effectively um, and, and be able to extract additional value from the marketplace. Um, and not be intimidated by the large uh, multinationals out there, but by um, using their creativity and their agility to be able to network and negotiate more effectively together, mm. that they can go out there and take great value um, yeah. to the world. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I can see that you, you it's, it's still a big passion of yours to, to get out there and, and help people. It's helping people, you know, you, you get a sense of achievement if you know you can see that what you're what you're sort of putting on somebody is they're getting something out of it they're getting better at something they're getting better at negotiating they're learning the skills they put them to use um, it's it's very can be rewarding do you find it rewarding as well what, what I, yeah what I find most rewarding and I've already had a few emails come back to me um, after last week um, which have given me a thrill because um, people have actually said I've been able to apply your techniques um, within the next two days um, and they gave me instant results and so uh, whilst I'm always looking at the theory and I'm looking at the trends I'm looking at the latest research that's coming in and what's happening with the um, the way that the neuroscience is improving nowadays um, in the past um, things that we get only um, ascertain from observing people's behavior and nowadays they're able to tap electrodes into your skull and actually be able to see exactly what's going on inside and see mm. the patterns uh, there as well. But uh, what I see my role is, is to be able to take all of that research and, and on all that learning um, and put it into small practical tools that people can apply the next time that they're 
negotiating and that's what gives me a thrill mm. and when somebody can come and say i just tried that i did this one technique that you suggested and it, it made a difference um mm. that's that's what i feel i mean the, the, there are there are so much information in the world out there um i see my role is to be able to take that information and put it in a way that people can actually use because i think we're overwhelmed by information mm. nowadays certainly but we're not certainly not overwhelmed with practical tips that we mm. can we can apply and any sort of predictions on the future as to what what what's gonna what's gonna happen? I guess uh, in the space of technology, uh, obviously at the and we're in the social media age at the moment. We just be better. I mean, everyone seems to be on on social media. It's obviously be, it's just a convenience thing. It's what's next after that? Thank you. <coughs> um, excuse me. Um, I think the the the. The, the level of increase of information mm. is, is simply going to um, uh, continue to overwhelm us. Um, at the moment, they assume that the total amount of um, information available to the human race and, and the amount of research that the human race has done since we became um, intelligent mm. uh, is doubling about every nine mm. months. The prediction is within a couple of years, that will double almost every day. And so we need to be able to find ways. I'm working with a company um, out of Asia at the moment that's mm. actually using artificial intelligence, um, an artificially intelligent search engine that can actually go out there and specifically look for information mm. because they're finding that uh, simply a human being using one of the typical uh, mm. conventional search engines um, is being overwhelmed again uh, by the information. We're noticing, yeah. I, I saw um, recently um, a newspaper article uh, written by a robot um, and um, and the, the test that we were put under was here are two newspaper articles, one's been written by a human being, one's been written by a robot, uh, can you pick which yeah. one was actually written by the human being and which one was written by the robot and somebody who has a, a large, a um, uh, lot of experience in writing I was not able to pick. Yeah. Uh, and so what they're predicting is that in, in the future, um, uh, the, the opinion pieces in the newspaper will still have to be written by a human being, but the, uh, but the articles about, about news are, will probably be written by a robot because yep. the information is coming in so quickly nowadays yeah. Yeah. that by the time you finish the article, it's almost become out of date. Mm. Uh, and what I'm, I'm predicting is that in, in our negotiation, in our preparation for negotiation, mm. where you need to have all of that information available to you before you go into mm. the negotiation, we'll probably have to use artificial intelligence yeah. tools to be able to help us to discern mm. what's the best information for that situation. Best, I guess, uh, in the, uh, what are the, what are any of the best tips, I guess, for blocking out the noise? Because you said we're overloaded with information, where the information is coming in at a faster rate. What are the best tips that you have for blocking out the noise on the stuff that we either don't need to know about or, need, need, you know, just to make sure we've, we've got the right information? I don't think we ever know that we've got the right information, Tim. It's, yeah. it's, we can only make a, a best guess yeah. at the moment. And, and, yeah. and the danger is if we shut ourselves off um, to the other information coming in, um, yeah. and, and that's the danger nowadays. People are using news feeds for their... Um, uh, for filtering the, the, the data that's actually coming into them. And so they fall into the trap of confirmation bias. In other words, I only get information mm. that, is, that is feeding my, my existing beliefs already. And, um, and I could very, very easily um, lose touch with some fundamental change if I'm not being aware of that. I think you need to be able to find um, wise people that you can interact with 
from from different backgrounds mm. that can help you make sense mm. from from definitely. a different perspective. Definitely, uh, definitely. Um, I think we're just about we're not not far from wrapping up here. I think Kevin, it's been really really good. It's time's gone really quick. We've already done forty minutes oh. on the podcast, <laughs> but uh, I think it's been quite interesting. Some of the conversation that you've sort of generated here. Um, that is for sure. But uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, I guess is there anything final that you sort of wanted to, to talk to the listeners about? Yeah, um, I'd love to give them one hint about how they can negotiate um, more, more effectively. Um, and it's about don't become too competitive. When you're going in, into a negotiation, be aware of the fact that we're trying to jointly problem solve here. Um, everyone talks about win-win when it comes to negotiation and yet I see it spoken about an awful lot more than I see it practiced and what what I think people need to do rather than actually using a um, maybe a sporty model which is based around a win-lose an- analogy I prefer to think of um, a negotiation as a mountain climbing analogy I need to get to the top of that mountain but I can't get there without you you need to get to the top of that mountain but you can't get there without somebody helping you as well and so if we can cooperate together Mm. we're going to allow ourselves to achieve more than we could individually and i think that way the negotiation is not only um, identifying the maximum value for each side it's also helping you to strengthen your network negotiation builds a stronger network for you and the stronger your network the better negotiator you'll be Excellent. That's really good advice, Kevin. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for coming along. It's been Kevin Ryan, international uh, public speaker, uh, business coach, uh, coaching lots of different organisations, and has very good uh, books out there as well as uh, some negotiating workshops as well. So thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, I'd like to catch up with you again uh, sooner rather than later, I guess. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for inviting me. No worries. See you later, listeners.